The French soldiers squeeze themselves up the narrow tunnel, holding their breath and trying not to gag. Flies buzz around them. It's wet, it's slimy, and it stinks. Above them, they hear the sounds of people moving around. Feet shuffling, someone clearing their throat. A hawk and a noisy spit. Then, one of the sounds they've been dreading the most. A stream of liquid spattering through the tunnel and a sigh of relief. Soon enough, they feel the liquid. It runs down the tunnel, unpleasantly warm, soaking their gloves and their knees as they crawl. The soldiers grit their teeth and shake their heads in silent disgust. As repulsed as they are, any sound they make could get them all killed. And their resilience is about to be put to the ultimate test by what they hear next. A pair of trousers being pulled down and a rough plank of wood creaking under the weight of someone sitting down. If there's a worse job in the world than climbing up a toilet chute, the soldiers haven't come across it. But they continue to scramble up through the stench and the filth, knowing that while this may be gross, it's going to be worth it. If they get to the top of this rank tunnel, two things will happen. First, they'll get their revenge on whoever has just drenched them with the contents of their bowels. But second, and more importantly, if they get out of this toilet chute and into the room above, known as the garderobe, they'll have broken through one of the last lines of defence in the strongest castle in Normandy, Chateau Gaillard. The jewel in the Plantagenet crown. The magnificent structure that was built by Richard the Lionheart at vast cost to defend the River Seine and the Norman capital of Rouen. Richard set his castle on top of a high river cliff. He incorporated the latest design features from the castles he'd seen on Crusade. He built a fortified town below it and put a guard tower on an island in the middle of the river to keep watch on passing boats. The castle is so mighty, Richard once said he would be able to defend it even if its walls were made of butter. But Richard is dead. His little brother John is now King of England and Lord of the Plantagenet Empire. This is the first big military test of his rule. It's the early spring of 1204. Chateau Gaillard has been under siege by the French King Philip Augustus for months. Slowly but surely, the French King's army has been chipping away at its defences. The castle stands on the north or right bank of the Seine. When Philip first turned up, he built a pontoon bridge across the river so his men could encircle Chateau Gaillard from all sides and starve it of food and supplies. Later, a daring French soldier called Galbert swam to the island in the middle of the river with pots of the incendiary weapon known as Greek fire strapped to his waist and set fire to the defensive tower there. Greek fire was a sort of medieval equivalent of napalm made from naphtha, 
And if you want to hear more about the strangest and most innovative weapons of the Middle Ages, then I'll be going deep in this week's subscriber episode. John realised that Chateau Gaillard was in deep trouble. He tried to relieve it by sending his top man, William Marshall, and several thousand troops marching by night along the bank of the Seine. They were accompanied by a fleet of war galleys rowing up the river. William Marshall did the business on land as usual, but the guys in the boats couldn't keep up, as no one realised how strong the river currents were, so the attack failed. All the while, Philip has been sending miners, or sappers, to dig out the castle's foundations, while keeping up a bombardment of the walls with giant catapults known as trebuchets. Bit by bit, sections of the castle have been falling, so that now all the defenders have retreated to the middle of the compound. Which is where the boys in the toilet chute come in. It may not be the most glamorous way of getting behind enemy lines, but if they can execute their mission, the French will be one step closer to taking down the castle. They do it to perfection. In fact, you could say they catch the castle's defenders with their trousers down. When they get to the top of the chute, the soldiers burst into the garderobe and fight their way into a chapel upstairs. They set fire to the chapel's door, then, in the confusion, run out into a courtyard and open a gate. French soldiers waiting on the other side of the gate rush in, and the defenders fall back even further into the deepest parts of the fortress. The game is almost up. At this point, the only thing that could save Chateau Gaillard would be John himself hurtling to the rescue at the head of a giant army, surprising the French as he did when he saved his mother at Mirabeau. This time, though, John is nowhere to be seen. As the greatest fortress the Plantagenets ever built crumbles and Frenchmen set fire to its finest buildings, John is MIA. Normandy has been joined to England since William the Conqueror's day in 1066. It's been the beating heart of the Plantagenet Empire for 50 years. Is it time to kiss all that goodbye? I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For Season 3. Episode 3, Lost Cause. There's a modern saying about wealthy families, which suggests that it takes just three generations to go from rags to riches to rags again. The first generation makes the fortune, the second stewards it, the third spends it. At this point in our story, it looks like that might be true of the Plantagenets. Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine built an empire. Richard looked after it, and now John, young enough that he's nearly a different generation from his elder brothers, is threatening to run the whole thing into the ground within five years of coming to the throne. 
For me, Chateau Gaillard is a perfect example of that. Henry secures the land, Richard builds the castle, John lets it slip from his grasp. But the assault on the castle in 1203-4 doesn't happen in isolation. As it's being besieged, so are dozens of others all over the Plantagenet Empire. It's part of an all-out war that Philip is waging against John anywhere he can. In old Henry's ancestral lands in Anjou, Eleanor's in Aquitaine, and, most important of all, Normandy, the richest and most strategically critical part of their realm. Philip's justification for waging this war is straightforward, and a direct result of John's actions from the last two episodes. In episode 1, John signed the Treaty of Le Goulet in 1200, meaning Philip can intervene in what ought to be internal Plantagenet disputes. Then last episode, John pinched the fiancé of a French lord and caused outrage when he let important prisoners die. What's more, suspicions are growing that something very bad has happened to John's nephew and rival for the throne, Arthur of Brittany. While no one's been able to prove anything yet, the longer Arthur fails to appear, the worse it looks for John. All that together has provided Philip with the perfect excuse to try and get some Plantagenet territories into French hands. That being said, though, winning a war is about more than just having a good excuse to fight it. So it's worth considering just for a moment why Philip does so well against John when he did so badly against Richard. Part of the reason, no doubt, is that Philip is simply a much, much more experienced ruler and military commander than John. Think back to season two of this podcast, when the French and English kings were temporarily allied while on crusade. You'll remember that Philip was directing the siege of Acre well before Richard arrived to join in. He knows how to approach huge military challenges like the assault on Chateau Gaillard. He's good at big, complicated strategic planning. And he also passionately believes in a single, clear goal, reuniting France under his leadership and kicking the Plantagenets out. Yet all of that was true five years before Philip's assault on Chateau Gaillard. There's no getting away from the fact that John plays a big part in his own misfortune too. We know about Arthur of Brittany, but there are other issues as well. One is that John doesn't really trust anyone, and no one trusts him either. As soon as Philip starts having some success in Normandy, John starts to convince himself that there are traitors everywhere looking to betray him. Instead of having faith in the Norman lords to hold their land against Philip, John starts hiring mercenaries and putting them in all his castles. Which would be fine in pure military terms. Medieval mercenaries are known for their elite fighting ability and ruthlessness. But they also have no loyalty to the local area, 
When John puts them in charge of castles, they rob and extort the people of the surrounding land in order to feed and sometimes just amuse themselves. That hardly impresses John's underlings. Nor does his aloofness and his refusal to glad-hand people who he needs to stay on side. William Marshall had already tried to raise this with him back in late 1203, before the fall of Chateau Gaillard. Marshall could feel the tide of war turning against them, and gave John a stern talking to about his constant alienation of people who ought to be his friends. Marshall's official biography relates the conversation vividly. Sire, you have too few friends, Marshall says. If you challenge your enemies to fight you, you will be crippled. John refuses to believe what he's hearing, and tells Marshall he doesn't care if people like him or not. He'll fight Philip on his own if he needs to. That's crazy talk. At this point, half the cities in Normandy are on the verge of falling to Philip's troops, and Chateau Gaillard is starting to buckle under the siege. But John sticks to his guns. If anyone's afraid, let him flee, he says. I'm not going anywhere for a year. Marshall is left scratching his head. He's scratching it even harder just a few weeks later, in December 1203, when John suddenly ups sticks and in the middle of the night creeps out of the castle they're all staying in, dashes to the coast, and hops on a boat to England. John leaves messages saying he's going to get back up from the barons there, but that seems hard to believe when people realise that John has taken his young queen, Isabella of Angoulême, with him. It feels less like, just popping out, back in five minutes, and a lot more like, don't call me. I'll call you. When Richard was alive, he used to make fun of his little brother, saying that John was not a man to win anything if there was someone standing in his way. That assessment looks more and more accurate every day. John is in England for weeks, then months. He's still there in spring 1204, when Philip's men crawl up the toilet pipe into the garderobe at Chateau Gaillard. And what has he been doing in that time? Well, his big return to Normandy to save the day operation doesn't seem to be progressing much. All he's done so far is give an order for wild animals to be caught in his English forests and shipped over, along with hounds and birds of prey, so that he has some sentient beasts to hunt, torture and kill when he finally returns. It's March the 6th when he gives that extravagant order. The very same day, the last defences of Chateau Gaillard are destroyed, and one of the most impressive fortresses of the medieval world surrenders, with just a hundred odd bedraggled defenders left inside. It's a crushing blow to the Plantagenet Empire. Less than four weeks later, it's followed by an even crueler one. On April the 1st, 1204, John's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, dies. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. 
And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Eleanor is 80 years old when she dies, after a series of illnesses going back quite a few years. That was a good age for anyone in the 12th century, not least someone who had lived such an action-packed, widely travelled and dangerous life as Eleanor had. She'd been on crusade to the east, she'd gone on the run and dodged kidnappers after her divorce. She'd survived the births of at least 10 children. She'd ruled over vast swathes of the Plantagenet Empire and done 15 years in prison. She'd crossed the Pyrenees and Alps in the winter and in her 70s, she'd escaped capture at Mirabeau. That's what I call a life well lived. Given how central Eleanor has been to the Plantagenet story, it would be wonderful if we could narrate her last moments as she lies on her deathbed. Does she think of her first husband, the monk-like Louis VII of France, or her second, the unloving and cruel Henry II? Which of her children does she remember most fondly? Are any of her grandchildren by her side? What are her last words? Well, perhaps it might not surprise you to learn that, once again, when it comes to Eleanor, most of the details of her death are either lost or were never recorded in the first place. It's not even totally certain where she dies. She had been living in what was supposed to be peaceful retirement in the Abbey of Fontevraud, where old Henry was buried. But she was regularly dragged out of her comfy chair by the need to support her sons Richard and John. The only chronicle that even mentions a location says she dies in Poitiers, 
the capital of her duchy. If it's correct, then we know that even at the very end of Eleanor's life, she's doing her bit to keep things hanging together. Whether she knows about Chateau Gaillard falling isn't quite clear. She must surely know that her grandson, Arthur of Brittany, is likely dead, because he hasn't been seen for months. She's probably heard the rumours that John is behind Arthur's disappearance. Exactly how she feels about all this is anyone's guess. Eleanor is buried in Fontevraud, where you can still visit her tomb effigy, the most astonishingly lifelike wooden sculpture, probably designed with her input before she died. It shows her smartly dressed, with a crown on her head and an open book in her hands. Maybe the most poetic account of her death is a line from a text called the Waverley Chronicle. It says, She passed from the world like a candle in the sconce goes out when the wind blows it. A sconce, in case you were wondering, is a wall-mounted candlestick. Also, Elton John, now we know where you get your ideas from. When King John hears about his mother's death, it's said he's distraught. And rightly so, Eleanor had been loyal to him to the end, sometimes blindly so. She still addressed him in her letters as Dearest One, right into her final years, when she knew full well what a feckless little weasel he was. John has double reason to mourn her, though. Eleanor was also technically the Duchess of Aquitaine, and while that was the case, Aquitaine was the one bit of the Plantagenet Empire legally off-limits to Philip Augustus. Once she's gone, all bets are off. Yet, by this point, John has pretty much given up anyway. As we heard, Chateau Gaillard falls on March the 6th, 1204. Eleanor dies on April the 1st. By May, John is receiving nothing but terrible news from Normandy every day. Caen, one of the biggest and most prestigious cities, is evacuated, and all the royal government documents there are packed up and shipped to England in carts. The whole Cherbourg Peninsula, stretching away to the west, follows swiftly afterwards. In June, Philip Augustus himself arrives at the capital of Normandy, Rouen. The citizens don't even bother to put up a fight. They strike a deal with Philip that he'll lay off them for 30 days, during which time John has the right to come and try to drive him away. It's a sort of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough pact. John, it turns out, doesn't think he's hard enough. Many years later, a chronicler called Roger of Wendover writes a magnificently scathing account of John's failure to defend Normandy. He says that John is so distracted because all he wants to do all day is lie around in bed with his teenage queen, Isabella of Angoulême. Whenever anyone tries to tell John that Normandy is being trashed and taken over, Wendover claims John dismisses them haughtily, saying he has more than enough to keep him happy, 
and that he's so rich he'll be able to win back what he's lost whenever he feels like it. Wendover is probably exaggerating, if not making this up wholesale. Yet somewhere in his story lies a kernel of truth. Driven back to England, John is reminded that, while things may be bad, they're far from lost. England is rich. Wealthy enough to have afforded a crusade, remember, and a king's ransom. As Normandy falls to Philip Augustus, with Anjou hot on its heels and even Aquitaine looking vulnerable, John is looking around him in England and seeing a cash cow still ripe for milking. If he plays his cards right, he reckons he may be able to turn things around. All the same, from 1204 he's living in England pretty much full time, trying to work out how to get his reign back on track. In that time, he really gets to know the place and its people. Unfortunately, that means they get to know him too. Not all of them like what they see, and not all of them are on board with trying to help King John out of a crisis they reckon is entirely of his own making. But that's for next time on This Is History.